0: CHAPTER 2 OF THE FALSE FACES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko THE FALSE FACES by Louis Joseph Vance CHAPTER 2 FROM A BRITISH PORT AND ONE MAN IN HIS TIME PLAYS MANY PARTS few more than this same lanyard in no way to be identified with the hunted creature who crept into the british lines out of no man's land was the monsieur duchemin who ten days after that wintry midnight took passage for new york from a british port aboard the steamship assyrian André Duchemin was the name inscribed in the credentials, furnished him in recognition of his single assistance rendered the British Secret Service in its task of scotching the Prussian spy system, and the personality he chose to assume suited well the name. A man of modest and amiable deportment, viewing the world with eyes intelligent and curious, his temper reacting from its ways in terms of grave humor, Monsieur Duchemin passed peaceably on his lawful occasions took life as he found it. made the best of irksome circumstances. This last idiosyncrasy stood him in good stead, for the Assyrian failed to clear upon her proposed sailing date and, for a live-long week thereafter, chafed alongside her landing stage. Steam up, cargo-laden and stowed, nothing lacking but the Admiralty's permission to begin her westbound voyage a permission inscrutably withheld, giving rise to a common discontent which the passengers dissembled to the various best of their abilities, that is to say, in most cases, thinly or not at all. Yet they were none of them unreasonable beings. They had come aboard one and all, keyed up to a high nervous pitch, pardonable in such as must commit their lives to the dread adventure of the barred zone, wanting nothing so much as to get it over with, whatever its upshot, and everlasting procrastination required them day after day to steel their hearts anew against the terror which followed its furtive ways beneath the leaden waters of the channel alone among them this m duchemin paraded successfully a false face of resignation protesting no predilection whatsoever for a watery grave no infatuate haste to challenge the hun upon his chosen hunting-ground in the fullness of time it would be permitted to him to go down to the sea in this ship meanwhile he found it apparently pleasant and restful to explore the winding cobbled ways of that antiquated waterside community made over by the hand of war into a bustling seaport or to tramp the sunken lanes that seemed those green old cornish hills which embosomed the wide harbour waters or to lounge about the broad white decks of the Assyrian, watching the diurnal traffic of the Haven, a restless warlike pageant. Daily, in earliest dusk of dawn, the wakeful might watch the faring forth of a weirdly assorted fleet of small craft, the day patrol, to relieve a night patrol as weirdly heterogeneous. Daily, at all hours, minesweepers came and went, by twos and twos, in flocks, in schools and daily bellowing offshore detonations advertised their success in garnering those horned black seeds of death which the hun and his kin were sedulous to sow in the fairways while daily battleships both great and small rolled in wearily to refit and dress their wounds or took swift departure on grim and secret errands there was moreover the not infrequent spectacle of some minor ship of war a truculent gray destroyer as like as not shepherding in a sleek submarine like a felon whale armored and strangely caparisoned in gray-brown steel to be moored in chains with a considerable company of its fellows on the far side of the roadstead while its crew was taken ashore and consigned to some dark limbo of oblivion And once, with a light cruiser snapping at her heels, a drab Norwegian tramp plodded sullenly into port, a mine-layer caught red-handed, plying its assassin's trade beneath a neutral flag. Not long after its crew had been landed, volleys of musketry crashed in the town jail-yard. One of a group of three, idling on the promenade deck of the Assyrian, Lanyard turned sharply and stared through narrowed eyelids into the quarter whence the sounds reverberated. The man at his side, a loose-jointed American of the commercial cast, paused momentarily in his task of masticating a fat, dark cigar. "'This way out,' he commented thoughtfully. Lanyard nodded, but the third, a plumply ingratiative native of Geneva, known to the ship as Émile Dressier, frowned in puzzlement. "'Pardon, Monsieur Crane, but what is that you say, this way out?' "'Simply,' Crane explained, "'I take the firing to mean the execution of our neutral friends from Norway.' The Swiss shuddered. "'It is most terrible.' "'Well, I don't know about that. "'They'd done their damnedest to fix it for us to drown somewhere "'out there in the nice, cold English Channel. "'I'm just as satisfied it's them, instead, "'with their backs to a stone wall in the warm sunlight, "'getting their needens. "'That's only justice. "'Eh, Monsieur Duchemin?' it is war said lanyard with a shrug and war is-no sherman was all wrong hell's got perfectly good grounds for a libel suit against william tecumseh for what he up and said about it-and war all in the same breath lanyard smiled faintly but dressler pondered this obscure reference with patent distress crane chomped his cigar reflectively what's more to our purpose he said presently i shouldn't be surprised if this meant the wind-up of our rest cure here that's the third mine layer they've collected this week two subs and now this benevolent neutral am i right monsieur duchemin who knows lanyard replied with a smile even now the mine sweeping flotilla is coming home as you see which means the neighbouring waters have been cleared it is altogether a possibility that we may be permitted to depart this night even so the event as that day's sun declined amid a portentous welter of crimson and purple and gold the moorings were cast off and the assyrian warped out into mid-channel and anchor there for the night inasmuch as she was to sail as the tide served some time before sunrise the passengers were advised to seek their berths at an early hour Thirty minutes before the steamship entered the danger zone, as she would soon after leaving the harbor, they would be roused and were expected promptly to assemble on deck, with life preservers, and station themselves near the boats to which they were individually assigned. For their further comforting, they were treated, in the ebb of the chill blue twilight, to boat drill and final instructions in the right adjustment of life-belts. A preoccupied company assembled in the dining-salon for what might be its last meal in the shadow of the general apprehension conversation languished expressions of relief on the part of those who had been loudest in complaining at the delays were notably unheard even crane lanyard's nearest neighbor at table was abnormally subdued reviewing that array of sobered and anxious faces lanyard remarked not for the first time but with renewed gratitude that in all the roster of passengers none were children and but two were women the American widow of an English officer and her very English daughter, an angular and superior spinster. Avoiding the customary postprandial symposium in the smoking-room, Lanyard slipped away with his cigar for a lonely turn on deck. Beneath a sky heavily canopied, the night was stark black and loud with clashing waters, a fitful wind played in gusts now grim, now groping, like a lost thing blundering blindly about in that deep darkness ashore a few wan lights widely spaced winked uncertainly withdrawn in vast remoteness those near at hand of the anchored shipping skipped and swayed and flickered in mad mazes of goblin dance to him who paced those vacant darkened decks the sense of dissociation from all the common kindly phenomena of civilization was something intimate and inescapable melancholy as well rode upon that black winged wind at pause beneath the bridge the adventurer rested elbows upon the teakwood rail and with importunate eyes searched the masked face of his destiny. There was great fear in his heart, not of death, but lest death overtake him before that scarlet hour when he should encounter the man whom he must always think of as Ekstrom. After that nothing would matter, let death come then as swiftly as it willed. He was not even middle-aged on the hither side of thirty, yet his attitude was that of one who had already crossed the great divide of the average mortal span. He looked backward upon a life, never forward to one. To him, his history seemed a thing written, lacking the one word, fini. He had lived and loved and lost, had arrayed himself insolently against God and man, had been lifted toward the light a little way by a woman's love, had been thrust relentlessly back into the black pit of his damnation he made no pretence that it was otherwise with him remained now merely the thing he had been in the beginning minus that divine spark which love had once kindled into consuming aspiration toward the right the lone wolf prowled again today and would henceforth forevermore the beast of prey callous to every human emotion animated by one deadly purpose existing but to destroy and be in turn destroyed Two decks below, about midships, a cargo port was thrust open to the night. A thick, broad beam of light leaped out, buffeting the murk, striking evanescent glimmers from the rocking facets of the water. Deckhands busied themselves rigging out an accommodation ladder. A tender of little tonnage panted nervously up out of nowhere and was made fast alongside. The light raked its upper deck, picking out in passing a group of men in uniforms. Fugitively, something resembling a petticoat snapped in the wind. Then, several persons moved toward the accommodation ladder, climbed it, disappeared through the cargo port. The wearer of the petticoat did not accompany them. Lanyard noticed these matters, subconsciously, for the time altogether preoccupied, casting forward his thoughts along those dim trails, his feet must tread, who followed his dark star." Ten minutes later a deck steward found him and paused, touching his cap. Beg pardon, sir, but all passengers is requested to report immediately in the music room. Indifferently, Lanyard thanked the man and went below, to find the music room tenanted by a full muster of his fellow passengers, all more or less indignantly waiting to be cross-examined by the party of port officials from the tender. The ship's purser standing by together with the second and third officers and a number of stewards. Resentment was not unwarranted already. Before being suffered to take up quarters on board the Assyrian, each passenger had submitted to a most comprehensive survey of his credentials, his mental, moral, and social status, his past record, present affairs, and future purposes, a formality to be expected by all such as traveled in wartime it had been rigid but mild in contrast with this eleventh hour inquisition a proceeding so drastic and exhaustive that the only plausible inference was official determination to find excuse for ordering somebody ashore in irons nothing was overlooked once passports and other proofs of identity had been scrutinized each passenger was conducted to a stateroom and his person and luggage subjected to painstaking search none escaped On the other hand, not one was found guilty of flagitious peculiarity. In the upshot, the Inquisitors, baffled and betraying every symptom of disappointment, were fain to give over and return to their tender. By this time, Lanyard, one of the last to be grilled and passed, found himself as little inclined for sleep as the most timorous soul on board. Selecting an American novel from the ship's library, he repaired to the smoking room where, established in a corner apart he became an involuntary and, at first, a largely inattentive eavesdropper upon an animated debate involving some eight or ten gentlemen at a table in the middle of the saloon. Its subject? The recent visitation. Measures so extraordinary were generally held to indicate an incentive more extraordinary still. "'You can't get away from it,' he heard Crane declare. "'There's some sort of funny business going on, or liable to go on, aboard this ship.' she wasn't held up for a solid week out of pure cussedness neither did they come aboard tonight to give us another once-over through sheer voluptuousness there's a reason and what a satiric english voice inquired do you assume that reason to be search me as far as i'm concerned the processes of the british intelligence office are a long slight past finding out it is simple enough one of Crane's compatriots suggested, the Assyrian is suspected of entertaining a devil unawares. "'Monsieur Means,' the Swiss inquired, "'I mean, the authorities may have been led to believe some one of us a questionable character.' "'German spy?' "'Possibly. "'Or an English traitor?' "'Impossible,' asserted another Briton heavily. "'There is to-day no such thing in England.' Two years ago, the supposition might have been plausible, but that breed has long since been stamped out. In England. "'Another guess,' Crane cut in. "'They've taken considerable trouble to clear the track for us. Maybe it occurred to somebody, at the last moment, to make sure none of us was likely to pull off an inside job.' "'Inside job?' Dressler pleaded. "'Planting bobs in the coal bunkers. Things like that. Anything to crab our getting through the barred zone, in spite of mines and u boats.' Any such attempt would mean almost certain death. What of it? It's been tried before, and got away with. You've got to hand it to Fritz. He'll risk hell for breakfast cheerful any time he gets it in his bean he's serving Gott and Vaterland. Granted, said the Englishman, but I fancy such an one would find it far from easy to secure passage upon this or any other vessel. How so? You may have halted all your traitors, but there's still a plenty of German spies living in England. Even you admit that. And if they can get by your secret service, to say nothing of Scotland Yard, what's to prevent their fixing to leave the country? Nothing, certainly. But I still contend it is hardly likely. Of course it's hardly likely. Look at these guys tonight. Dad's set on making an awful example of anybody that couldn't come clean i didn't notice them missing any bets they combed me to the queen's taste for a while i was sure scared they'd extract my pivot tooth to see if there wasn't something incriminating and degrading secreted inside it and nobody got off any easier i say the good ship assyrian has a pretty clean bill of health to go sailing with on the other hand, yet another American voice was speaking. No spy or criminal worth his salt would try to ship without preparations through enough to insure success, barring accidents. Criminal, drawled the Briton incredulously, the enterprising burglar keeps a burglin even in war time. There have been notable burglaries in London of late, according to your newspapers. "'And you think the thief would attempt to smuggle his loot out of the country aboard such a ship as this? "'Why not?' "'Scotland Yard, to the contrary, notwithstanding. "'If Scotland Yard is as efficient as you think, sir, certainly any sane thief would make every effort to leave a country it was making too hot for him.' "'Considerable criminal,' Crane jeered. "'Undeceive yourself, signor.' this was a brazilian a quiet little dark body who commonly contented himself with a listening role in the smoking-room discussions there are truly criminals of intelligence and war conditions are driving them out of europe of a sudden lanyard stretched out at length upon the leather cushions in full view of these gossips became aware that he was being closely scrutinized by whom with what reason or purpose he could not surmise and it were unwise to look up from that printed page but that sixth sense of his intuition what you will that exquisitely sensitive sentinel admonished that at least one person in the room was watching him narrowly Though he made no move other than to turn a page, his glance followed blindly blurring lines of text, and his quickened wits overlooked no shade of meaning or intonation as that talk continued. A criminal of intelligence, someone observed, is a giddy paradox whose fatuous existence is quite fittingly confined to the realm of fable. You took the identical words right out of my mouth, Crane complained bitterly your pardon signoras history confutes your incredulity but we are talking about today even today can you deny it men attain high places by means which the law would construe as criminal were they not intelligent enough to outwit it big game crane objected something else again what we contend is no man of ordinary common sense could get his own consent to crack a safe, or pick a lock, or do second-story work, or pull any rough stuff like that. Again, you overlook living facts, persisted the Brazilian. Name one. Just one. The lone wolf, then. A natural history is out of my line, Crane objected. Why is a lone wolf? Anyway, the Brazilian's voice took on an accent of exasperation signores i do not jest i am a student of psychology more especially of criminal psychology i lived long in paris before this war and took deep interest in the case of the lone wolf well you've got me all excited go on with your story with much pleasure this gentleman Then, this Michael Lanyard, as he called himself, was a distinguished Parisian figure, a man of extraordinary attainment, esteemed the foremost connoisseur d'art in all Europe. Suddenly, at the zenith of his career, he disappeared. Subsequently, it became known that he had been identical with that great Parisian criminal, the Lone Wolf, a superman of thieves who had plundered all Europe with unvarying success for almost a decade then what made the silly ass quit? According to my information, he won the love of a young woman. And reformed for her sake? Of course. To the contrary, signor. Lanyard renounced his double life because of a theory on which he had founded his astonishing success. According to this theory, any man of intelligence may defy society as long as he will, always providing he has no friend, lover, or confederate in whom to confide. A man self-contained can never be betrayed. The stupid police seldom apprehend even the most stupid criminal, save through the treachery of some intimate. This lanyard proved his theory by confounding not only the utmost efforts of the police, but even the jealous enmity of that association of continental criminals known as the Bond Noir, until he became a lover. Then he proved his intelligence. In one stroke, he flouted the police, delivered into their hands the inner circle of the Bond Noir, and vanished with the woman he loved. And then? The rest, said the Brazilian, is silence. It is for tonight, anyway, Crane observed, yawning. It's bedtime. Here comes the busy steward to put the lights and us out. There was a general stir. Men drained glasses, knocked out pipes, got up, murmured good nights lanyard closed the american novel upon a forefinger looked up abstractedly rose moved toward the door the utmost effort of exceptional powers of covert observation assured him that at the moment none of the company favored him with especial attention the author of that interest whose intensity had so weighed upon his consciousness had been swift to dissemble on his way forward he exchanged bows and smiles with crane and one or two others his gesture completely casual yet when he entered the starboard alleyway he carried with him a complete catalogue of those who had contributed to the conversation With all, thanks to seven days association he stood on terms of shipboard acquaintance not one in his esteem was more potentially mischievous than any other not even the brazilian velasco though he had been the first to name the lone wolf it was furthermore quite possible that the mention of his erstwhile sobriquet had been utterly fortuitous, and yet one might not forget that sensation of being under intent surveillance. In his stateroom, Lanyard stood for several minutes, gravely peering into the mirror above the washstand. The face he scanned was lean and worn in feature, darkly weathered, framed in hair, whose jet already boasted an accent of silver at either temple. The face of a man inured to hardship, seasoned in suffering, strong in self-knowledge the incandescence of an intelligence coldly dispassionate quick and shrewd lighted those dark eyes distinctively a face of gaelic caste three years of long-drawn torment had served in part to erase from it well-nigh all resemblance to both the brilliant social freebooter of antebellum paris and that undesirable alien whom the authorities had sought to deport from the states amazing facility in impersonation, had done the rest. Unrecognizable as what he had been, he was today, flawlessly, the incarnation of what he elected to seem, Monsieur Duchemin, gentleman of Paris. Impossible to believe his disguise had been so soon penetrated. And yet again, that gossip of the smoking-room. Police work? Or had Ekstrom's creatures picked up his trail once more? beneath that urbane mask of his a hunted wild thing poised in question mistrustful of the very wind prick-eared fangs agleam eyes grimly apprehensive a little sound the least of metallic clicks breaking the hush of his solitude froze the adventurer to attention only his glance swerved swiftly to a fastened door in the forward partition his stateroom being the aftermost of three that might be thrown together to form a suite the nickel's knob was being tried with infinite precaution on the half turn it checked with a faint repetition of the click then the door itself quivered almost imperceptibly to pressure though it yielded not a fraction of an inch lanyard's eyes hardened he did not stir from where he stood but one hand whipped an automatic from his pocket while the other darted out to the switch-box by the head of his berth and extinguished the light Instantly, a glimmer of light in the forward stateroom showed through a narrow strip of iron grillwork set in the top of the partition for ventilating purposes. Simultaneously, the doorknob was gently released, and with another, louder click, the light in the adjoining cubicle was blotted out. Mystified, lanyard undressed and turned in, but not to sleep, not for a little, at least. Who might this neighbor be who tried his door so stealthily? before to-night that room had had no tenant apparently one of the passengers had seen fit to shift his quarters to what end to keep a jealous eye on the lone wolf perhaps so much the better then lanyard need only make inquiry in the morning to identify his enemy deliberately closing his eyes he dismissed the enigma he possessed in marked degree that attribute of genius ability to command slumber at will swiftly the troubled deeps of thought grew calm on their placid surface inconsequent visions were mirrored darkly fugitive scenes from the store of subconscious memory crane's lantern-jawed physiognomy keen eyes semi veiled by humorously drooping lids the extreme corner of his mouth bulging round his everlasting cigar grimy lions in trafalgar square of a rainy afternoon the octagonal room of la baie Thélemme at three in the morning a swirl of bacchanalian shapes wertheimer's soldierly figure beside the telegrapher's table in that noisome cave at the front the deck of a tender in darkness swept by a shaft of yellow light which momentarily revealed a group of folk with upturned faces a petticoat fluttering in its midst End of chapter two Recording by William Tomko.